Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. Give the people what they want. Coming to you uh, a day of our normal schedule. Today is Saturday because we are Zoe and I are in the middle of um, a city called Glasgow in Scotland where the COP26, unfortunately, friends, it's called COP26, but it's nothing to do with the police convention. It's the um, conference of parties regarding climate change. And it's Zoe and I and Prashant from People's Dispatch, your favorite um, web portal for news, peoplesdispatch.org, bringing you give the people what they want. On November the 6th, instead of November the 5th, for which we apologize. But what can you do? Uh, here's the world of, of news people. It's Glasgow. It's raining. I know we're in a Airbnb with all kinds of junk behind us. Sorry about that, friends. Um, but we're in the front lines to bring you uh, the smell of the protests. Yesterday, big youth protests taking place, a massive march. Lots of people trying to demand climate financing. I'll talk about that later. It's rainy. Today's the big march. Um, are we excited about the big march? Yeah, seems like maybe 100,000 people might come out today despite the rain, despite all of the restrictions to get here and to participate. It'll be pretty historic. It'll be pretty historic, but um, if some of this rain could be diverted to Iraq, that would be a good thing because in Iraq, um, the government's agricultural ministry is telling us that only one third of the durans, one third of the land that is uh, cultivatable is being cultivated as a consequence of a multi-year climate change induced drought. Friends, a multi-year climate change induced drought. Only one third of the land can be cultivated this year. That's a direct um, result of climate change. And my God. Are we confident about this COP? Sometimes mm. I think it's not conference of parties, but it's countries of polluters. Mm. Um, you know, the United States President Joe Biden comes with 85 cars and goes to sleep. <laughs> can't You can't make it up. It's, it's... He went to sleep. This is a fact. Boris Johnson looked sleepy himself. Mm. Um, they're not serious, these men who govern the most developed countries, the countries with with money, with technology. They're not serious. And they have been blocking very credible, very good initiatives uh, coming up from other countries in the world. Many poorer countries, including small island states, which are directly at the front lines, friend, of this climate catastrophe. They are going to face it first. Not only small island states, I, I know we often talk about small island states, but also low-lying coastal areas. The coast of Bangladesh, for instance, has already faced great dangerous erosion, not only in the de developing countries, poorer countries, but also in the, in the developed countries, the coastline of the Gulf Coast of the United States, um, Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, torrential, terrible hurricanes coming and tearing through people's lives. Is this a consequence of uh, human-produced uh, climate catastrophe? Seems like it is. The difference between this COP now, 2021 in Glasgow, Scotland, and COP uh, at Paris in 2015 
is that in between 2015 and 2021, we've had, I don't know how many, we've had a series of reports from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and they have made an impact. And you know what else has made an impact? What did you, how many people did you say today? Today, there's an estimate around 100,000. Yesterday, there were 25,000 youth on the street. 25,000 young people on the street. Yesterday, Zoe and my, I met with 200 of them who came from Belgium on four buses. They took a long time to um, you know, fundraise to get these buses. And I actually don't know how they drove a bus across the English Channel, but these are very smart Belgian children I, I, and young people. I was very impressed with them. They put climate squarely on the agenda. And whereas in 2015, the big countries refused to allow discussion of carbon emissions caps, um, at 2021 COP, they have to they have to at least talk about it, even though not seriously. Uh, isn't that like a phrase for our times? Talk about it, even though not seriously. Um, human rights on the table also, because some of the impact of the carbon crisis is that there'll be human rights violations against people. There is no greater human rights um, open source violation on our planet than the uh, people of Palestine, what they face. Rashant, what's been happening in Palestine? I saw recently another 13-year-old boy was killed. But what's the story? What's happening there? Right, Vijay. Today, I just wanted to uh, bring another update about a struggle we've been covering for a very long time, which is that of Sheikh Jarrah. And uh, the fact that on Tuesday, the families, four families who were offered a compromise by the Israeli Supreme Court decided to reject that compromise offer. Now, we know that Sheikh Jarrah over the past few months has actually become a microcosm for the larger Palestinian struggle as well, because these are people who were refugees, who gave up their refugee status, uh, who gave their refugee status on the assurance of homes. And now they are being told to vacate the homes in which they lived for decades. Because, you know, uh, and some Israeli organization claims that the land originally belonged to a Jewish community or Jewish groups. And this is almost like a microcosm for the larger issue as well. And it's not only the demand by the organization, but also the fact that the Israeli state, the Israeli legal system have all 100% sided with this organization. So it's actually not at all surprising that Sheikh, the Sheikh Jarrah issue became one of the, uh, you know, triggers for this mass uprising that took place in Palestine over the past few months. And on the one hand, of course, people around Palestine have been protesting around the world as well, but also that these families have been, you know, determined that they are not going to exceed an inch, so to speak. So recently, the Israeli Supreme Court offered them a compromise according to which they would be allowed to stay there as protected tenants. Now, it's very important to know the terminology is protected tenants as long as they gave what the Israeli media hailed as a nominal rent to the organization, to the Jewish organization concerned, Yalash Shimon. And also the fact that, you know, these families would be allowed, be, we considered first generation settlers, which means they could have descendants, two generations, so the descendants could stay there. All this, of course, <clears throat> sorry, all this, of course, concealing the fact that basically what this meant was Simba in, while legally may, they may be allowed to stay there, in principle, they had given away the rights of their of ownership to the other organization because you know they're now paying rent and it's not their homes anymore. So that really is what it boiled down to. And the fact that this was a compromise offer offered by the Israeli Supreme Court really speaks to how the how institutionally these families and the Palestinian people have been targeted throughout uh, all these years. So now what lies ahead is a difficult question because 
uh, it is believed that now the court might pronounce a verdict. It is possible that the court might, uh, you know, decide in favor of the organization, in which case these families will be faced with a situation where they have to leave. Now, the last time this happened, of course, it led to mass protests. And, you know, just because these are a few families on a, in what is a small region in East Jerusalem, I think doesn't take away from the historic significance of the struggle and the kind of resonance that, the, you know, the, the way it resonates with Palestinians, with supporters of the Palestinian cause across the world. So definitely something to sort of, uh, you know, look out for and watch out for as well, because we've been seeing, and the other, the other aspect, of course, is the fact that Palestinian hunger strikers are, you know, they've been striking against administrative detention, seven, seven people on hunger strike. The long, the, the longest ones are around 114 days, at least two people. One somebody, somebody on 114 days is Kaidal Hosfus, and the other person on 107 days today. And just imagine people uh, on a hunger strike for over three months, and their demand is so is basic that the administrative retention policy not uh, you know not be be discontinued for them because one of the Kaidal uh, Hosfus who's been jailed in jail since October 2020, and he's just been on administrative detention, which is where they keep extending your jail term without mentioning any charges. So Israel's solution has been that uh, they have suspended the administrative detention, which means that if anything happens to these Palestinians, it will be the responsibility of the hospital. And Israel can claim that they were not technically in jail when something happened to them. Organizations are warning that their health is in a deep crisis. So I, and wherever you look in Palestine, whether it be the prisons, whether it be your homes, whether it be public spaces, places of worship, Al-Aqsa Mosque, again, you know, raided by Israeli security forces on Thursday, so in every aspect, we see an attempt to erase the culture, the existence of Palestinians. And uh, like you said, it's one of the biggest uh, open sores of human rights violations. On the other hand, it is also one of the biggest sites of resistance that people see around us, that we see around us today. So definitely a lot of issues to keep watch. You know, Prashant, all these stories, they could have been written last year, five years ago. Israeli troops in Al-Aqsa, another person killed, Sheikh Jarrar. You know, it's it's incredible how there's a repetitive nature to these protests. Um, the government of, of Chile is toward the end of its term. Uh, there'll be an election first round in November, likely second round in December. Um, you know, Chile as well, there, there's a cliched quality to the news. One Mapuche killed, another Mapuche arrested. This has happened to Mapuche. That has happened to Mapuche. This has been going on for almost 500 years. Uh, Zoe, update us. What's the latest in this series of, I mean, I'm sorry to say it, but cliched stories. Yeah, well, really, it's it's a very tragic um, situation in the Mapuche territory, Walmapu. So as we have all of these leaders coming to Glasgow talking about, you know, the need to protect the environment, to support the people in the frontline communities, of course, uh, the Mapuche people have been resisting um, to protect their territories from logging, from the predatory action of capital in their territories, been trying to recover the land that they were violently, you know, evicted from. Um, and uh, as of uh, October 12th, uh, Sebastian Piñera declared a state of emergency in the Mapuche territory. It's called the Araucanía in Chile. And that has essentially meant that the military has been occupying their land. And in this context, um, to a young man of 23 years old, Jordan Machacan, was killed by a member of the uh, armed forces. Another was gravely injured. Dozens of others, you know, with similar, you know, bad injuries. And this is, you know, just 
a horrible situation because it is, while these heads of state are talking about the need to protect the environment, this is how they're treating people who are protesting mm -hmm. to protect their land. And this is a pattern that we're seeing quite frequently across Latin America right now, using the state of emergency as a tool to quell protests and to kind of militarize the response to these protests. So in Chile and in the Mapuche territory, this has been happening for years. But, you know, Vijay, uh, you recently wrote an article mm -hmm. with Tarwa in Ecuador. Uh, Guillermo Lasso has responded to protests in the country in a similar way. Um, he's using the kind of um, excuse of, you know, drug trafficking and uh, crimes uh, to to declare a state of exception in the country, um, which gives the armed forces basically complete impunity to act how they want. It actually uh, has a clause in the Ecuadorian state of emergency saying that they will not be, um, you know, uh, penalized for their actions. And he believes that they're often treated too unfairly when they commit these crimes. Similarly, farther north in uh, Central America, in Guatemala, where the indigenous community has been protesting against a nickel mine where uh, companies have been illegally um, extracting nickel from uh, this, this mine that was, you know, technically under, uh, that was supposed to be suspended. And they had been protesting on the streets of Guatemala to block the, the mining company's trucks from coming in. And in response to this, what happens? The president decrees a state of siege. Um, they completely evicted the protests and responded by raiding the homes of dozens members of the indigenous ancestral council by journalists who are accompanying this. So this is a very worrying trend that we're mm -hmm. seeing. And of course, in Chile, this has resulted in the death of a 23-year-old member of the Mapuche community. And we've seen this militarized response across uh, across the continent, across the region, and it's and it's quite worrying. And so we need to see. I mean, it's unfortunate that these leaders come to these big, you know, conferences with big words, mm -hmm. with that we're going to invest and that we're going to, you know, enter into these partnerships, fulfill these goals. But when it comes down to it, the people who are trying to protect nature and trying to conserve the mm -hmm. environment and promote alternative solutions. Um, and it doesn't mean, you know, no extractivism across the board. But for example, in Guatemala, they're asking for there to be a consultation that when they are implicated, when their territories are going to be affected, that they must be properly consulted. And this is a ILO convention, 169. Um, and so these are very important to keep in mind as we're discussing, you know, combating climate change, preserving the environment, that these are the communities who are being affected and also being criminalized, being assassinated. And the Mapuche community is calling it continuation of the genocide. Continuation of the genocide, you know, some people use the term in Palestine, permanent Nakba, permanent catastrophe. It's not something that happened in 1948, I suppose. Continuation of the genocide means it didn't just happen, you know, when when old Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue and so on. Um, these are permanent conditions. But interesting, friends, uh, you know, you're listening to give the people what they want. We bring you these stories every week on our uh, show. You read them at People's Dispatch. You read them at Glo from Globetrotter. Um, you get a sense of what's going on and, and look at what's going on. Let, let's try to summarize our show today. Okay. State of emergency declared in Ecuador. State of emergency declared in Chile. State of emergency in Guatemala. Why? Uh, essentially to deal with protesters. You know where there's no state of emergency declared? In the planet Earth. Uh, there's a climate catastrophe. There is no state of emergency. 
During the pandemic, there was a state of emergency declared. Interesting. Central banks during the pandemic raised or made, created, manufactured $16 trillion. Central banks manufactured $16 trillion in the developed countries to help businesses get through the emergency of the pandemic. Uh, to get through the emergency. They were called emergency conditions. There's an emergency in Ecuador, emergency in Guatemala, emergency in Chile. And, you know, we know what happens. 23-year-old killed there. Palestine, it's an occupation. That's a permanent emergency. Again, a 13-year-old killed. People from Sheikh Jarrah being evicted and so on. Pandemic, that was an emergency. I grant you, 16 trillion minimum raised by the central banks. The countries of the developed world pledged, they pledged to put $100 billion a year. Mind you, I said 16 trillion. That's the T word, trillion. The countries of the developed world pledged to put $100 billion into a climate fund every year. That was the climate fund to help poorer countries make a transition from what is called mitigation. Mitigation means taking care of the negative impact of catastrophic climate change. For instance, Iraq is going through a terrible uh, drought now. How to mitigate that? Well, one way would be to build perhaps better piping. Um, Iraq has a lot of leakage in water pipes and there's therefore a lot of evaporation from the pipes. Well, make better insulated pipes and so on. That's mitigation finance. And then the green transition finance so that a country like India will not rely on coal-fired power plants and perhaps use different cleaner sorts of energy, non-carbon emissions forms of energy. Well, into that climate fund are peanuts. Peanuts. Uh, there is no emergency to fulfill that climate fund. During the day of debate at COP, uh, when the uh, heads of government and ministers were discussing climate finance, there was a day set aside for this. During that day, what they essentially focused on was to prevent multilateral uh, banks and so on from financing fossil fuel industries. Now, that's interesting. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, the World Bank didn't join it, by the way, just in case you're wondering, which is one of the major financiers of fossil fuel industries. But the sum of money put into that fund is extraordinary. Okay. Let's pause again, just because I'm doing a lot of summaries, because you might be losing the fact and the train of thought. $16 trillion raised to help businesses get through the emergency of the pandemic. $100 billion pledged annually for the climate fund. Right now, you know, there's crickets inside that fund. To prevent banks and others from investing in fossil fuel industries, they raised $18 trillion. 18, 1, 8 trillion, not even near the 100, uh, sorry, 18 billion. What did I say? Trillion? No, now I made a mistake. 18 billion, not even the 100 billion, 18 billion for that. And I want you to pay attention to something. Even that 18 billion is targeting the poorer countries in the world, which are mostly reliant on coal fired plants and so on. The principal carbon emitters are the advanced countries in the world and China. And China largely emits because China is the manufacturer of the world. It's emitting on behalf of the major consuming countries in the world. They're just not doing anything. 
they're not doing anything climate finance has got to be at the center of the discussion it is not at the center of the discussion place like iraq it requires finance place like pakistan requires finance um, unless we get through that other problems will you know be um, on the table many other new problems will arise in pakistan lots of problems arising prashant what's happening there right uh, vijay again coming back to an issue we talked about on the show quite often which is the uh, which, which is the pashtun tafus movement the movement fighting for the rights of pashtuns and a very important person in that movement ali wazir who has been uh, you know the leader of that movement he's been in jail since december 2020 just a few days ago a court decided to invoke a charge of sedition against him so uh, what of course is this his crime of sedition his crime of sedition involved giving a speech which seems to be the favored reason for invoking sedition for a lot of people so we have uh, ali wazir who is in jail for over for close to a year and being charged with sedition on the other side of the spectrum of course is the fact that the tlp which is a right wing party in pakistan and which just recently conducted a massive rally uh, against the government of imran khan ended up uh, basically getting all the compromises it wanted which means basically that at the end of the day the party which was banned for focusing on blasphemy the party which was banned for you know calling for violence against women this party and which was uh, basically uh, asking for the expulsion of the french ambassador this party basically will soon get recognized so what we have right now is two sides of the coin two sides of the spectrum in pakistan where a left wing progressive movement which sought justice for the pashtun uh, for the pashtun people the, of course the, uh, the pashtun tafus movement led a march in 2017 in the region where because of landmines so many people have lost their lives so many people have lost their limbs and their their demand was for justice for these people their demand was for compensation their demand was for removal of these mines their demand was for demilitarization none of these demands which have really been accepted but the leaders of these movements have been persecuted continuously so if you look at we have written about this extensively in people's dispatch many of these leaders facing case after case after case that's that's one hand of course on the other hand we also have many of these leaders and members being targeted by armed gangs for instance ali wazir's brother was assassinated just a few years ago in 2005 i believe many members of his family were also assassinated so uh the irony is striking right now because like i said you have two sides of the spectrum there's the tlp which is you know made blasphemy its key point which is targeted minorities when uh, a christian woman asia bibi was acquitted on charges of blasphemy this organization threatened to kill her but this organization actually gets legitimacy from the government there are signs that it might actually be unbanned on the other hand progressive activist people who are fighting for a just cause facing trial after trial tribulation after tribulation and today like i said uh, whether it be india whether it be pakistan whether it be many parts of the world just like you pointed out how emergencies are you know used to suppress activists sedition is so convenient a charge sedition is so convenient uh, a term such an umbrella term you know any speech any active uh, even in india right now the very draconian uapa law has been imposed against various journalists some of whom were just tweeted about violence taking place in one state so uh, this being the uh, so it remains to be seen of course all the leaders have denied the charges they're going to fight the cases many of them are, are on bail but uh, it's a bit of a bleak situation for the pashtun tafus movement which is the pashtun pride movement as well as 
the leaders who are actually facing this amount of persecution and, and, and violence. This is a terrible, terrible story. And I think the connection that you made, Prashant, between emergency um, decrees put forward by the presidents of South America and Central America and the link between that and the language of blasphemy and sedition um, in South Asia, I think it's a direct line and it's very insightful that we put this on the table. I think we should develop this a little more, uh, maybe make an atlas of different forms of, of the crushing of dissent and how, how, you know, how different kinds of language is used in different places. Um, we're in the middle of a, of a period and I'm surprised we're waiting till the end of the show to get to this because Zoe seems to um, uh, always report about elections in South America and, and Central America. Uh, stunningly, they seem to have more elections than other people. It's of course not true. Uh, other countries also have elections, but we don't seem to pay attention to them for some reason. Uh, and Prashant, that's, a, that's an indictment of your and my uh, coverage. Uh, I'm not sure what's going on, but you know, well, yes, there's been a coup in Sudan. And so, well, the question of elections suspended for now. Um, there will be elections in India, important elections next year. Uh, the Legislative Assembly elections to Uttar Pradesh going to be monumental. And I know we'll spend time. Uh, you and I will keep coming back to that election just to just to catch up with the South American story. Nonetheless, Nicaragua, big election, big, big elections. Zoe, what's happening? Well, this story is, I think, much more about U.S. imperialism than it is about the elections themselves. Of course, this plays a huge role. But tomorrow, uh, Nicaraguans are going to the, to vote uh, in general elections. They will elect the president as well as you know members of the legislate uh, the legislation body. Um, and you know what has the U.S. done ahead of these elections? I think this is the important point here. Um, so. In the past couple of years, the U.S. has been increasing its pressure against Nicaragua, um, you know, creating a lot of different narratives about uh, the government being dictatorship, uh, being one of the largest violators of human rights that exists on the planet, um, which, you know, as if you watch, uh, give the people what they want. I think we can point to a lot of other countries that have, uh, you know, human rights records that are um, pretty high up there. Um, and the U.S. has started to apply a, a pressure campaign on Nicaragua, similar to what it's done against Cuba, against Venezuela, um, you know, starting with some light, you know, light sanctions, you know, targeting some officials, uh, you know, starting to add Nicaragua to the troika of, you know, tyranny that it considers uh, that operates out of Latin America and threatens security in the United States. Um, and it's really, you know, group Nicaragua with all these other um enemies of the US. And, you know, this is also to deny the fact that Nicaragua, if you look at Central America, is one of the most stable countries economically in terms of levels of violence. I mean, we talk about Honduras a lot. We talk about El Salvador, Guatemala, countries where thousands of people are leaving every single day because they're not able to survive and because they're not able to uh, lead a healthy and safe existence in their countries because it's overrun by corruption by U.S.-backed uh, leaders who have do not have their best interests in mind. Whereas Nicaragua, it's a lot more stable. There is, uh, you know, state support to many different sectors. Um, you know, the situation of women, we just published a piece in People's Dispatch about this. 
all of that to be said that of course Nicaragua's opinion of uh, US's opinion of Nicaragua is has its political motivations. And so they have these big elections coming up tomorrow. You know, of course, because of the stable situation in Nicaragua, the people are quite in support of the government. You know, of course, they may have their qualms. They have, you know, you, of course, not a, every government has its contradictions. Um, but it's very likely that the Sandinista government led by Daniel Ortega and um, will likely come back to power uh, in, and will be elected in these um, these polls tomorrow. And so the U.S., in anticipation of this, um, first this week carried out a massive censorship campaign on social media, closing the Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook accounts of very active Sandinista, you know, uh, activists. So these are not, you know, a lot of them are, are not government officials, are just people who share news about what's happening in Nicaragua, share information, trying to get the word out because there has been so much censorship and their accounts were closed. Um, and actually an official uh, sent out a whole Twitter thread saying that they had done the largest coordinated uh, counterattack against a troll farm. Um, and they go on to say people who are hired to do social media and they're tweeting from nine to five every day. And, you know, they're tweeting these pro-government messages. And I mean, I don't know, we have to ask ourselves, isn't that, I mean, social media management is a job and people, you know, have to tweet information out. That's just part of what it is. And so it's really this kind of, and you know, no opportunity to get these accounts back, just completely shut down. Then the more, you know, crushing action that they did was to passing the Renacer um, Act, which was passed with complete bipartisan support um, yesterday in uh, the United States. Um, and this essentially classifies Nicaragua as, you know, a threat, a human rights threat, um, and proposes a series of sanctions uh, very crushing sanctions, which, uh, you know, only time will tell, but will likely have a similar effect to what we've been seeing, you know, in uh, Venezuela, in Cuba. And so this is really uh, a dangerous and concerning sign. And tomorrow we'll see what happens, what will be the response of the U.S. political elites to these elections. But Joe Biden has yet to sign the bill, but it has already been praised. It has been lauded by the likes of Marco Rubio. And, you know, of course, people on the other side of the aisle. Troika of tyranny. That's what the U.S. government calls uh, some of these countries. We are the Troika of truth. Uh, that's Zoe, Prashant, and I'm Vijay. They are from People's Dispatch. I'm from Globetrotter. We come to you every week, give the people what they want. Troika of truth. If you like the name, tweet about it. See you next week. Bye.